Hi, I'm Nathan Maharaj, producer of the Kobo in Conversation podcast. In our last episode, you heard from over a dozen of my colleagues about the best books they read in 2022. We record that episode over a three-hour marathon where I sit our host, Michael Tamblin, down and I usher folks through the Zoom waiting room to talk with him about their book picks. Of course, not everyone can make it to that time slot. So to be sure that you hear from everyone who's got something to shout about, I meet up with folks one-on-one to hear about the best books they read this year. So... Welcome to the Side B episode of our annual Staff Picks tradition. Can you tell me who you are and what do you do at Kobo? Hi, I'm Jenny. I'm the product marketing coordinator at Kobo, so I work a lot on device launches. Now, hang on a second, Jenny. We've heard from you before. I believe you were on the previous episode in a uh, in a two-hander talking about uh babble but you you had another book that that actually you made me promise that I, that i would have you back <laughs> and you would talk about it so tell me um tell me what is this book that was so important that you strong-armed me and making sure that uh, that you could tell our listeners about it i hardly think i strong-armed you but the book that i really <laughs> wanted everyone to hear about uh is kaige by vaishnavi patel which is a book i read earlier this year and absolutely fell in love with what is it tell me about it so kaige is a sort of feminist retelling of the hindu epic the ramayana where we take the perspective of kaige who is traditionally known as sort of a very minor evil stepmother type of character in the epic. And we take her perspective, we get to see her point of view and see how, you know, the circumstances of, uh, you know, the way the society is, is part of the reason why she ends up in the situation that she is in, in the epic. Um, So it's a very sort of empathetic story. It's a story about women helping other women and empowering each other. Um, And it's got a little bit of magic got a little bit of you know fun characters from the epic that you may recognize if you're familiar with it but even if you're not familiar with the epic it's still a really cool mythological story that i think everyone can find some value in were you coming at this like a like a little bit of a of a mythology nerd yes yes absolutely i absolutely love um all of the stories from the epics um kaige in specific as a character though i wasn't super familiar with because like as i said she's a kind of a minor character in the story but her actions are part of what set the entire story on its course. Um, so it's interesting because she's so crucial and yet so minor at the same time. Hmm. When you heard about this book, were you like, oh, I, I recognize Kaiki. She's this character and she was off in the corner in the shadows. Or is she so minor in the original epic that you were like, she's in that? <laughs> yeah, I was kind of interested because I feel like in the epic, there are so many other female characters that you could also take the perspective from and you could like, you know, make this feminist retelling. And I found it interesting that the author took Kaige's perspective. So yeah, initially I didn't recognize her immediately. And then I like went and re- like searched her up and I was like, oh yeah, this character. And so I was really excited. Um, and I think the way that the novel handles her story is just so fascinating. Have you read around this n- recent trend of kind of feminist retellings and reframings of mythologies. I think mostly we've seen it um, in Greek myth. Is, is that, is that a spot where you've been or is it, was it like you were waiting for them to do Hindu mythology and then you were in? Uh, Funnily enough, 
uh, kind of both. So I have always like seen these Greek mythological retellings and I actually really love Greek mythology as well. I was like a classics studies major as well um, and or in high school. And um, I had Circe by Madeline Miller on my list for the longest time to read. I had read her book, The Song of Achilles, which is also fantastic, but less of like that feminist element. Um, but I heard Kaige was coming out and it had been comped very often to Circe. Um, but me being me, I wanted to read Kaige first because I was so excited about it. And then I went back and read Circe. And I think like I still find Kaige that much more compelling to me because it was a story that we're not often getting. It was, you know, something personal to me because I am Hindu. Um, and I think it just had so many more facets to it. But I still think like fans of Circe will find it really fantastic. Um, and if you're a fan of this like whole trend of, uh, you know, feminist Greek mythology retellings, you'll really find something amazing in Kaige. That's that's wonderful. That sounds really good. I, I hope it's the start of something bigger. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So tell us once again, the title of the book, uh, we've said it many times, and the author. Yeah, so the book is Kaige by Vaishnavi Patel. Okay. And we'll have a link. I know people are probably listening and, and struggling how to spell it. Links to all these books are in the show notes. <laughs> no worries. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you. Can you tell us who you are and what you do at Kobo? My name is Terrence. I work for Kobo Writing Life as a content coordinator. And what's the best book you read this year? <laughs> I had to really think about this, um, but I decided to go with The Book Eaters by Cindy Dean. Um, it was honestly like one of the most interesting books I've read in a while, not just this year. Mm. Um it's a speculative fiction title. So that means it's kind of a mix of horror, sci-fi. It's got some fairy tale vibes, kind of like a gothic, a little bit of a gothic fiction thing going on. Okay. Um, and also has some, has some action thriller elements as well, which like it's basically a mix of everything. Um, it was really, really cool. It follows the story of uh, this woman named Devin, who is a book eater, which... Uh, <laughs> it's all there in the name. They are a kind of cre- humanoid creature that survives off of eating books. Uh, and the story follows her as she uh, tries to escape from the very cloistered, very oppressive um, world that she lives in, in her book eater family. And uh, it's, yeah, it was just incredibly original, incredibly cool book. <laughs> what does a book eater stand to gain from this from this activity? That's like one of the main questions of the book, actually. <laughs> um, so in Book Eater Society, these creatures were, they believe that they were created to obtain as much knowledge as possible. Whenever they consume a book, like physically eat it, they gain all of the knowledge that's in that in that book. And um, the main character, Devin, she struggles with like that question, like, why are they doing this? Um, what is their purpose? Like, why are they so secretive? Why do they have all these rules? Um, she she was raised on um, human fairy tales, and then finds out that these kind of fairy tales were being used to to oppress her in a way to keep her complacent, to like make her vie for marriage, to like uphold family values, stuff like that. And again, so it's it's a really interesting book, like not just for questioning like her place in her own society but to look at stories in general like how they influence us and of course there's lots of stories in the book that 
influenced Devin positively and that she she really uh, like feels helped her in her strange monstrous life. <laughs> but um, but also, yeah, questioning like, what are we doing with this knowledge? How is it helping us? How is it hindering us? It's it's really cool. Very philosophical at points, but also very action packed. <laughs> I, I get the sense that this really hit a sweet spot for you and that, but it's a place that you spend a lot of your reading life. Is that fair to say that you're in the spec fic, gothic, horror blended kind of world most of the time? Most of the time, I think so. At least, at least in the last couple of years, I yeah. used to be a big, um, well, I still am. I'm still a big poetry and nonfiction reader, mm -hmm. but over the last couple of years, I've turned to some more like, you know, ex escapist stuff as many people, as many people have. Mm -hmm. And I've really been enjoying the area of, um, yeah, sci-fi, speculative fiction, gothic, a lot of gothic narratives, uh, for sure. Which again, mm -hmm. this, this book is set in kind of like rural England for the most part, as well as Scotland. Are there moors? I hope there are moors. There are lots of moors. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, that sounds really great. Can you tell us again the name of the book and the author? Yep. So it's called The Book Eaters by Cindy Dean. That's amazing. Thank you, Terrence. Thank you. Who are you and what do you do at Kobo? <laughs> My name is Tracy Nestle and I lead the marketing communications team. Yeah, you're my boss. <laughs> <laughs> As it turns out. Uh, what's the best thing that you read this year? Well, it's interesting because I am a huge fiction reader and I read a lot of great fiction. But the two books that stand out for me this year and have really stayed with me are nonfiction. Hmm. And they are um, The Empire of Pain. Uh, the Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, mm -hmm. written by Patrick Radden Keefe, and The Son of Elsewhere by Elamine Abdel Mahmoud. And they're very different books, but there's a similarity to them. Really? I didn't see a through line. Okay. Well, let me tell you what I saw as a through line and why they both stayed with me so much. So The Empire of Pain is really a, a, a real deep study, very, very high level journalism to the point of, of essentially being a legal document of how the opioid crisis in North America happened and as it was about to extend into Europe. And the opioid crisis is one of those things like it, it, it was in the news all the time. It was, it was kind of all around us and like the pictures of, of people dying in their cars with their to toddlers in the backseat and so on permeated um, popular culture. And it was one of those things that's like terrible, terrible, terrible. And yet the it, it, it's like you're feeling the side of an elephant trying to identify what it is. And this book describes something so well and so simple. Hmm. Essentially, the Sackler family were high-level drug dealers, not unlike the Medellin cartel or El Chapo. Yep. They figured out how to use the system against itself and quote-unquote legally were selling heroin on the street for years and years and years by lying, by falsifying their marketing materials, mm -hmm. by, by consciously targeting um, doctors that were overprescribing and areas where there would be a need for pain medication, like the rust belts, where people would be susceptible. 
and they knew how addictive this was. Mm -hmm. And yet it didn't matter. And they felt that they could hide behind their quote unquote good name and look at all the good things they've done and so on and so forth. Um, you know, built universities and contributed to many a Sackler wing, many a Sackler wing yep. flying around the world. Yep. Uh, so it's just absolutely shocking to me, the deliberate nature of addicting a nation. Do you get a sense through this book of the individual members of the Sackler family and that, that family dynamic? Very much. Um, I mean, this is very much uh, a, um, a, a, a kind of a biography of, of not only a crisis, but of a family mm. and their, you know, roots in, you know, immigrant ambition and, and how, how important it was to them to be at various tables of power. And they were, and they clung to that relentlessly. And what fueled that was their, their selling of, of opioids basically on the street without scrutiny. That's incredible. No, it really was incredible. And, and just the lack of remorse or even human understanding. And then at the very end, there's, there's this, you know, ostensibly the, the Purdue, um, the, phar the pharmaceutical company they owned, sort of went bankrupt, but only, only the part of, the, of Purdue that was formerly selling antacids and things. So mm. <laughs> it was a little, little shell game going on to the very, very end. So absolutely no, no remorse. And mm. um, it, it's like every page I turned, I was like, I can't even believe this is real. And yet it is. And how do you trace your through line then to Son of Elsewhere, a memoir in pieces? So this book uh, I read in one day. Wow. And I'm very excitedly writing to you saying, oh my gosh, this is the best book. We've got to really promote it. And you <laughs> rightly said, well, have you looked at the blog? I've got an interview with the author there. <laughs> so yes, we had just, yes. I think you got excited at exactly the moment that we were publishing my interview with him on, on this podcast. Well, the, the, the reason why I see a through line is it's, it's, it's that sense of, like you have this sense of something going on all around you and yet you can't quite pull it all together. It's just, it's just part of the atmosphere and the reasons for it and the nuances of it are, are, are unclear. And, and, and the, the this that I'm talking about is really this sense of identity and what it means to be, to find your self in in any society and 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 you know we here at, at Cobo have been really grappling with what does diversity and inclusion mean for us and it's been really really difficult and when I read this book I saw oh well the reason why I don't get it is because it's so nuanced there's so much there to unpack and I learned a great deal of what otherness is or feels like what the effects of colonization are on on a a person and a group and and how very very complicated it is like let me let me see if i can read you the first sentence because this is what sort of blew me away the first sentence of the book is 
It took two stopovers and 19 hours of total flying time for me to become black. And, and that just made me stop in my tracks because it's like, yeah, you know, if you, if, if, if you come from a place where you just are in the way that I can just be as a white person in a predominantly white city, imagine. Mm-hmm. And um, so the, the author comes from the Sudan and talks really openly about all of the ways that he tried to find identity and belonging and, and all the ways and the ways that he felt excluded from what black culture in mm-hmm. North America is played as. That wasn't his culture. Elamine loves country music <laughs> and uh, wrestling fanfic was an early area of success. Which has got to be a niche. <laughs> Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a really interesting book. When we we spoke about it, and I, and I asked him about that because it was it was a really interesting uh, concept that he brought up in the book of coming to a place and finding yourself slotted into a racial category that didn't exist in the place you just departed. Exactly, exactly, and and how mind blowing that must be, and and also. Like just finding your niche, even within that that category you've been you've been put into, where it's like I like country music. Yeah. So um, so anyway, what I, the the what both these books did for me is explain something that we are living with every day, the effects of which we live with every day, and are 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 difficult to grasp in 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 without basically without books to help us. Hmm. I, you know, if if you're relying only on news or only on whatever social channels you you pay attention to or whatever, you get such a fragmented view. And every once in a while, you just need to like sit with it and examine it and learn it um, as a as a a whole. And then each book is a part of a larger whole. It was uh, Tracy Summer of opening her eyes. Oh. Uh, that's brilliant. Can you tell us again? You were two books because you had you had two picks because as we established, you're my boss and you can do what you want on this show. <laughs> Empire of Pain, uh, which is the secret history of the Sackler dynasty, recommended reading to anybody who wants to know how corporate crimes are committed and with what impunity. Uh, that's written by Patrick Radden Keefe and Son of Elsewhere by Elamine Abdel Mahmoud. Brilliant. Uh, Yeah, they're both absolutely brilliant, absolutely readable page turners. Thanks, Tracy. Thank you. Tell me, who are you and what do you do at Kobo? Hey, Nathan. I am Trevor Hunter, and I am Kobo's chief technology officer. So that's mostly the software, the hardware, the operations. And usually when things go wrong, it's my fault. So I only, so everybody else does a great job. I, I break things. So, right. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you have something to do with like things going right. You know, the, you know, all, all that uptime, you got to take credit for the uptime. A uh, little bit, but mostly when it goes wrong, then I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, certainly. Yes, it does. It will, when it breaks, uh, it's a narrow skill set that allows us to get back up. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us what's a book you love this year. So this year, um, 
What If 2 by Randall uh, Monroe came out second in the series. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a fantastic non-fiction book written in a a humorous way. Um, Like the title, it says, What If? Um, And I love the premise because just asking what if is such a useful thing in general. Um, You know, if you have a business problem or if you have a technology problem or you're thinking through something and there's just some hard blocker, like you don't have enough budget or you don't have this or the technology doesn't exist to do that specific thing. There's a huge value in just saying, well, what if it did? Assume that that's a solved problem and assume that what would we do in that situation or what would we do next? And then thinking through that sort of process of what's next. And more times than not, you'll find that thing that you thought was a blocker actually isn't a blocker Hmm. because you come up with a new way of doing it or just the learnings of what you've done by thinking through what if that was possible are just a fantastic learning experience. So what if takes um, scientific uh, uh, problems that are frankly just not possible and remove that one little blocker and then think through what would actually happen. So what's what's an example of one of these? Because some of these are pretty wild. Like, so folks are thinking like, oh, this is a book for like, you know, practical problem solving. It really isn't. Like, right. what are the kinds of things considered in What If 2? No. So um, What If 2, um, I'm, I'm struggling just from memory to pick one, but one of my, uh, my favorite ones um, uh, from one of the What If books, the first one is just the relativ- relativistic baseball. What if you could throw a baseball at the speed of light? What would what would happen? You know, just that what if. Never be able to throw a baseball at the speed of light, but what would actually happen? And just the funny explanation of what would happen to the air, what would happen to the pitcher, what would happen to the stadium, and give you that sort of sense of order of magnitude of disaster that would happen if that was possible, just provides a, a fun comedic way of exploring those type of things but also um just a really good way of learning like learning Mm. other limitations learning other principles another one is what if you could fit the entire volume of niagara falls through the volume of a straw like what would actually happen and you know you get to the point well that volume of water through such a small space would have to go through it close to the speed of light. Right. <laughs> what, would happen to this, what would happen to the straw and what would happen to this thing? And then you get into Bernoulli's principle. So there's a real approachable aspect to very complex parts of science, whether it's their relativity or fluid dynamics that are just explored in such a fun, comedic, absurd way that mm. allows just that you know, pulling the thread that you can dig a little bit deeper into those subjects uh, a, a little bit later. I, I love that. And I love just that technique of asking, what if, what if that's not actually a blocker? What would we do? Because it, mm. it applies to business cases. It applies to technology problems and it leads to just more learning and innovation uh, mm. beyond there. How did you read this book? Did you, did you go all the way through? Did you just keep like, it's, it sounds chunky is what I'm, is what I'm really asking. Like, each topic is a few pages. You could take it piecemeal, but I just uh, binge read it and stuff. Um, it's just, uh, you know, get the book, you know, an hour later and uh, I'm kind of through it and just wanting for the next scenario and things like that. There's a type of book that I think is made for a certain kind of 
lazy holiday time kind of reading because it's really well disposed to sitting on the couch for like 20 to 40 minute stretches and then getting up and getting a cookie or refilling your coffee cup and telling whoever you find in the kitchen about the thing you just learned. Yeah. Does this describe your behavior reading Randall Monroe? Pretty much. Yeah. Like <laughs> I said, the, the short chapters are great. You can read a chapter in five minutes and, and that's a complete topic. And the topics aren't necessarily intertwined into a big story where there's a big reveal at the end is they're all independent. They're kind of like, um, you know, an anthology rather than a, a, a big long chapter novel. So you could read it, read it standing in line on your phone. You could read it, you know, just like you said, on the couch and then talk to somebody about it um, or have a complete different topic, whether it's, you know, astrophysics or Niagara Falls going through a straw. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I think that's really good. But but what I love about it too, and this is this is something that I think in society is is coming about, but long overdue is science communication. Um, there's a body of science um, that's super important to topical things, whether it's vaccines, whether it's um, climate change, whether it's um, diversity, inclusion, and biases, and uh, and things like that. Um, there's always been this artificial blocker between science and technology and general population. I think over the past few years, people like Randall Monroe and the proliferation of podcasters and YouTube creators like Smarter Every Day or Veritasium or um, you know Kurzgesagt in a nutshell, this this idea of a science communicator is so important in our society um, because it makes those complex topics approachable, interesting. If there's one area that I would say is a, a critical role alongside journalism, it would be science communication. Um, mm -hmm. And Randall Monroe is kind of one side of that, I think. That sounds great. Uh, and we love, we love good science communicators. Anybody who looks at the feed of the show will see. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, Katie Mack, Britt Ray, um, lots of science communicators. So tell us again, Trevor, the name of the book and the author? Um, the name of the book is What If Two, and the author is Rondell Monroe. Awesome. So if folks uh, want to start with What If Two, they can do that. They can go back and start with What If if they like. It's all fun. Yeah. Thanks, Trevor. No problem. Thank you, Nathan. My name is Yesha, and I work as a QA lead um, in Kobo R&D department. Basically, uh, whatever people are giving us in the feedback, I am the one response. I am one of the one responsible to read it, investigate it, and assign it to the team, and getting it resolved and out to the door as soon as possible. You live in a world of broken stuff that you're trying to make less broken, yes? Exactly. <laughs> Can you tell me? What's the best book you read this year? Um, so I'm usually a non-fictional reader. However, this time I came across People We Meet on Vacation by Emily Henry. Mm -hmm. And it's narrated by Julia Whedon. Uh, that is the one book I, I, I loved reading it. I'm usually not a fictional book reader, but this was very light. I love the fact that this was contemporary romance. Mm -hmm. What's it about? 
So it's about two friends uh, taking summer vacations and sharing their lifestyle, their friendship, their romance, and all the miscommunication can which they can have while communicating all the time with each other. Are they romantically entangled from the start, or is that a tension that sort of exists through the book? It's not from the start. It like it it, it involves it evolves while they you know grow together. Who are the characters? Can you tell us about them? Sure. So uh, the girl named Poppy and the guy named is Alex. What is their relationship? So they met each other in university uh, through common friends through our high school, uh, and they they are completely different personality, uh, mm-hmm. but they joined in in the carpool, uh, and that's how they got to know each other, and then their friendship prolonged and ever lasted. They dated different people as well, but their mm-hmm. their go-to thing, even they live in the different cities, mm-hmm. one thing they have consistent in their life to meet on and go on a summer vacation. The book mentions like 10 different locations. Mm. So you got to see it from the author's eyes um, about those places. So that was amazing. So they're, they're a pair of friends friends just just college friends uh going on vacation every summer together and it seems to be going on for at least a decade yes how smooth is their path towards <laughs> towards this ultimate kind of uh consummation or or uh, happy ending um i won't say there is like much of a drama there it is it is fairly smooth yeah but it's about the communication and miscommunication mm. and 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 you know, uh, accepting or uh, like having the courage to ask uh, another person because you don't want to ruin the friendship. And you listened to the audiobook. Even people who love reading fiction often have a tough time with fiction on audio. Um, can you tell me about your experience of, of listening to it? Okay. So I initially picked this book in summer when I was on vacation to read about other people's <laughs> vacation. Well done. Uh, and 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 at, at that point of time, I was reading it, not listening to it. But then I found it a little lengthy. Uh, I was not able to connect uh, as much. But then I got audiobook, and that actually helped me set a tone. How mm. you know how how well spoken and how. How the tone of a girl and a guy, like how the characters are, actually, uh, I was not being—I was not able to imagine this side of them. But the voice added a layer to the character, which I imagine helped. Given that what compelled you about this was how they how they communicate and kind of talk past each other and get each other wrong. Exactly. Yes, and and they are very humorous. So in their chatting or in their talk they are always pulling each other's leg uh, <laughs> and like sounding it instead of reading it it's kind of more fun it made it more fun for me mm. well what's interesting also about you listening to the audiobook of this is i am also a person I, I read a fair bit of fiction i tend not to listen to fiction i i go to i go to audio for for nonfiction, um, even narrative nonfiction, but something about the the art of like literary art just doesn't work for my ears most of the time. Um, but I listened to a novel uh, earlier this year. Um, in fact, listeners will find my interview with the author Jean Hanf Korolitz about um, her book The Latecomers in this uh, in the feed of this show. But it was also narrated by Julia Whalen. And what I suspect is. Um, 
Julia Whalen now needs to be cited as the exception. Like I don't listen to audiobooks that are novels, except except if Julia Whalen has, has yeah. narrates it. Yeah, that's amazing. And I okay, so to say, I just didn't listen to the whole book. There was part where I was reading it, sure, and there was part when I was listening to it because listening sounds more fun to me yeah. uh, uh, than reading because it can get little lengthy. So tell us again the name of the book and the author. People We Meet on Vacation by Emily Henry. Thank you, Yesha. Thank you. Who are you and uh, and what do you do at Kobo? I am Michael Tamblin and I am Kobo's chief executive officer. Well, this is great because we had... Um, we had Tracy on, and of course, I clarified that uh, she is my boss, and as such, she then took the authority to um, uh, to go ahead and recommend two books. So, <laughs> I mean, if she can do anything she wants, um, really, the door is open now. It's wide open. I, I, not like I needed to tell you. This is a late breaking change up. This is a book that snuck in right at the end. Okay, what is it? The book is called Bombay Brokers. And it is by Lisa Bjorkman. And this is, uh, it's a work of nonfiction. And it's a work of cultural anthropology, economics, business, government. And each chapter is a study of a different job in Mumbai, uh, each of which is a different kind of broker. They could be the person who secures permissions necessary for water and sewer lines and construction sites, or the person who produces crowds for political rallies, or the woman who recruits workers from the countryside to the city and is then responsible for taking care of them while they're in the city. Each of the roles is profiled by a different person as well. So they might be interviewed by an anthropologist or an artist or a city planner or a business person. So not only are each of the roles incredibly different, but the style of the different portraits mm. are as different as the people who are being highlighted. And uh, it's amazing. I'll, and I would stress that it is not a work of cultural tourism. You know, it isn't look at how strange this is. Mm. It's that, you know, here's an incredibly complex environment to get things done. So many stakeholders, regulations, land issues, interpersonal issues. Uh, and here's how people have evolved to navigate all of these complexities. So it's about ingenuity and entrepreneurship and problem solving. I found it incredibly fascinating. And I read it last night. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing? Oh, like sat down and just could not stop. It was incredible. Wow. You read it all in one go, but might a reader employ it kind of as a, you know, a palate cleanser? Uh, you know, every couple of weeks I, I, I swallow a chapter of this book. You could. It, it's broken into a number of big sections. So, you know, some are about development. Some are about services. You know, some are about kind of law and crime. And and then within that is, call it, a, you know, anywhere between four half dozen um, individual portraits of particular brokers in each of those space. So you are literally looking at you know, the person who could be responsible for the the maintenance of public plumbing facilities in a particular part of town, and that's their whole portrait. And then you're moving on to another person who is responsible for 
uh, you know, city water connections. Right. And, and each one represents its own incredibly complicated network of connections and relationships that get illustrated through the profile. Do you know anything about how they stitched all of this together? This apparently came together in um, a series of conversations among um, both people who lived in Mumbai, anthropologists who were working there, about the people that they knew who functioned in this role. So it kind of came together as a collective effort of people saying, these are fascinating stories. You know, this is an incredible environment in which uh, in which work happens. Let's capture these relationships mm-hmm. and uh, and these people um, in a way that really reflects and respects the work that is being done, um, you know, as individual careers. Mm. Feels like a uh, like a studs turkle for the 21st century. <laughs> if there were you know 25 different versions of studs turkle involved in the same book, yeah, I think if it were one person all the way through. It would start to. It would probably feel a little too much, mm. but instead, you see different people honing in on different things. Some are interested in the politics of it. Some, the you know the religious aspects of it. Some just the how do people get through the day and navigate bureaucracies. So you really do get a bunch of different lenses put on what could otherwise be seen as kind of a series of the same portraits. As you began to introduce the book, you named a bunch of things that that I certainly didn't know were jobs. I didn't know that was like labor to be done. What's the wildest job that you discovered through this book? There is a person who, there are a series of people who have uh, built careers around the maintenance of public washroom facilities in Mumbai, which is incredibly important from uh, you know public health perspective, sanitation perspective. But they are completely local to a, you know, a particular part of a community. So, you know, this could be something that serves an entire neighborhood, but the person has become attached to it, has a career around it, is interested in like, how do I make this experience better? How do I mm. differentiate mine from someone else's? Um, what is the revenue model that I'm using to support it? And one of the you know, great things I discovered is that whenever you make one, uh, you should always put the name of the politician who helped to sponsor it on the front of it, so mm. that anytime anything bad happens, you can say, "Well, listen, you know, this this has your name on the building. You really want to come and you know help us with this issue that's going on." And uh, I think that's a lesson that should really be applied to everything from now on. Oh my goodness! I think Toronto would do better than sixty percent of public washrooms being opened if uh, if the mayor's name was was on it. And the counselor, you know, that's right. <laughs> that sounds fascinating. Yeah, if you are, if you're a fan of Jane Jacobs, you know, if you loved City of Quartz by Mike Davis, who's a, you know an amazing kind of urban anthropologist who died this year and wrote about Los Angeles, um, you know, any of the books that are about the city fabric of you know New York or London or Paris, like this is mm. the book that that opens up a whole urban landscape in a way that would be would be kind of difficult to discover any other way um even um and i think from the people writing there even if you live there you don't know that all of this activity is going on around you all the time so uh fascinating book highly recommended and tell us again what's it called it is called bombay brokers and it is by lisa bjorkman thanks michael thank you 
Thanks for joining us again to hear all about the best books read by my colleagues this year. Kobo and Conversation will be back with author interviews very soon, so subscribe if you haven't already, or take a look through our episode archive to see if we interviewed one of your favorite authors. The link in the show notes will take you to kobo.com conversation, where you'll find all our stuff. I'm producer Nathan Maharaj, and I want to thank you again for letting us spend this time with you, and I hope you found something great to read.